Our scripture reading for this morning is um, found in the book of 1 Peter. So if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, you can find that on page 1014, I believe, in the Pew Bible. And if you could join me in standing in honor of God's Word as we read it together. You can follow along as I read. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a chosen, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's God's word to us. You may be seated as we pray. Oh God, you are great and worthy to be praised. You are excellent and your excellencies are manifold you are like a diamond with so many facets 
and we pray that we would see and know and enjoy and exult in those glorious excellencies, that we would see your great power, your great love and mercy and kindness and patience, your justice, your faithfulness, and that we would adore you for it and that we would proclaim your excellencies to anyone who will listen. Lord, we also acknowledge that we have oftentimes worshipped and served created things rather than you, the creator. We have looked away from you and we have fixated on second things, lesser things, and we have commended them and praised them as excellent and we have um, been cold and flat and indifferent to you, the most excellent, glorious God. And we pray that you would revive our hearts this morning where we have allowed our affections to be drawn away by second things. Would you call us back to yourself this morning? And Lord, we, we need your grace. We thank you that you have provided it abundantly through Christ, not because of anything in us, nothing that we deserve or have earned, but only because Jesus is our great Savior and the one who enables us to be reconciled to you, the excellent, worthy, worthy, glorious God. So Lord, I pray that we would be filled with thanksgiving, with praise, because you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light because of the gospel, through the gospel of Jesus. And I pray that we would exult in that this morning as well. Uh, Lord, each of us comes in this morning with different needs, different challenges, different issues, and we pray that you would come and speak to us, that you would minister your word to us through our study of your word, through conversations afterwards in our home groups this afternoon or this evening or later this week. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need to know your, your care, what you think of us. We need to know your mind and your heart and your will. And we pray that you would make us ready and receptive to what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, we also think of... <clears throat> uh, the singers, as we pray for uh, one of our missionary families each week, we thank you, Lord, that the singers have been with us for this extended time and that you have continued to, to make clear to them your path forward as they've evaluated um, the next season of, of ministry. Lord, we thank you for... Um, for leading and guiding them as they, as they propose this new ministry um, structure for being based here in the U.S. and for Dwight to be taking trips to Africa to teach and support um, seminaries there. Lord, we pray that you would continue to lead and guide and make your path clear to them. Help us to care well for them um, as they seek your will and discern your timing and path. Lord, thank you for... Um, their encouragement to our body as they've been present with us. Thank you for the ways in which they've been able to be uh, engaged and an encouragement to their family members that are close by. We pray for Miriam's mother and Dwight's parents. Um, Lord, for your sustaining grace in their lives. Uh, we thank you for their children and for their granddaughter, Allison. And Lord, we pray that you would bless their family um, fellowship and unity in Christ, and um, we just thank you that they are able to be close by for this season here. And Lord, we pray um, for Nigeria, even as they are here with us. I know their hearts are, are still in Nigeria, and we pray that you would um, have mercy on that country. Would you please do a miracle and cause the collapse of Boko Haram? Um, would you please 
bear your strong arm and shut down that uh, murderous group and bring peace to that country. Lord, would you uh, also protect that country from further spread of Ebola? And I know that it's been on the singer's hearts and and many of us as we've seen the news. And um, Father, would you have mercy on this world and certainly on the countries of Liberia and Sierra Leone and Guinea, um, these many health workers and pastors and those who've lost loved ones as they seek to minister to people. Um, Lord, we pray that you would have mercy and, and stop the spread of this disease. And we pray that the Christians would be on the front lines of loving people in Jesus' name and risking for the sake of of gospel love, and we thank you for the many that are. Um, So Lord, as, as our hearts come back here to this moment right now, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would feed us, that you would shape us. I pray that we would not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. So help us to listen and help us to respond to your word. For your great namesake, we pray, amen. Okay, well, um, it's good to be back this week. Um, missed you all last Sunday. Thank you for your prayers for the InterVarsity retreat um, last weekend that I spoke at. It went really well. There was a little over 100 students and um, just came away really thankful for um, that ministry that the Lord has sustained down at UD. Glad that we have an opportunity to regularly partner um, in the gospel work on that campus through Colleen's ministry there. Um, while I was gone, I was able to listen to, or actually after I got back, but while I was gone, Tyler did a great job um, focusing our attention on the fifth metaphor in this series on faith in the local church. We are Christ's flock, so that fifth metaphor. And so this week, we're going to finish up the series. Um, we're going to look at one more metaphor in the Bible for the church, and then we're going to wrap up the whole series here this morning by considering how we need to apply what we've learned over these six weeks in our lives in the context of our church, okay? Next week, Lord willing, we're going to actually start the book of Isaiah, okay? So pretty intimidating, um, but I'm praying that the Lord will make me adequate for that task um, and that he would use this just massive but magisterial, rich, wonderful book to shape us as a church. Um, So pray for me. Pray for us as a church that we would be changed by all of the grace and truth that's in this great book, quoted a ton in the New Testament. So if we're going to understand the New Testament, we have to understand the Old Testament. Um, so I may also be posting or sending some introductory materials to help, help you as we all dive into these deep waters, but you could get a great start by just reading through the book of Isaiah. It might take you a little while. Um, but just by reading through it. And if you have a good study Bible, like the ESV study Bible, it would be great to read the introductory uh, material um, in that study Bible. It would really help you as you start to to dive in. So the final metaphor this morning that we're going to consider in the local church series is it's found in multiple places throughout the Bible, but we're going to consider it primarily from the text that I just read for our scripture reading. So as we dive in, you know, hopefully you have your Bibles open still to 1 Peter 1 and 2. As we dive in, consider, consider this. How long would a person have to hang out with you, shadow you maybe this next week, to know what's important to you? How long would it take? What are the indicators? Okay, some of them are pretty obvious, things that you give your time to. But that's not quite factor enough because some people spend a lot of time at work and they hate it. <laughs> so they have to do it, but it's kind of a necessary evil. It's not all that important to them. It doesn't have their heart, right? So it's not just time. Things you spend money on, okay. Again, not factor enough. Many people spend a lot of money on health care and they're thankful for health care, but they might not be very excited about health care. It's not where their heart is. They just want to be healthy. So 
Here, here's the question. What if, what if we actually hung out with God for a little while? What would we quickly observe is most important to Him? All right, let's dive in. There is an outline in your bulletin if it's helpful. Um, so this is point number one, which is the metaphor that we're going to consider this morning. God speaks of us, His people, the church, as His treasured possession. Okay? It's really remarkable. <laughs> I mean, if you think of all the other metaphors and what we were prior to the grace of God invading our lives. Okay, so think of those other metaphors the last five weeks. Um, if you haven't been here, you'll get a little brief overview here. So the first one was that we're Christ's body. Well, prior to, to God grabbing a hold of us and saving us by His grace, making us a part of His body, we were cut off spiritually. We were spiritually dead in our sins. Okay, it's kind of like when we sin, it's kind of like cutting the branch off that you sit on and you fall to the ground. Well, yeah, it's your fault. Don't rage at the tree and you're cut off from the life of the tree. Okay, so cut off spiritually, but by his grace, if you're a Christian, he made you a member of his body. And when we're talking members, it's not like a, a unit like you're a member at Costco and you let your membership lapse. It's actually an organic member like a, like a kneecap or a thumb, okay? An organic member. Or secondly, the church is the family of God. It's another metaphor that the Bible uses. Well, we were cosmic runaways. We're like orphan street urchins, okay? But by His grace, He came after us and He adopted us into his family as his children by the power of the gospel. Or the third one, we're Christ's bride. Well, we were like spiritual adulteresses, unfaithful to God, running, like looking for love in all the wrong places. You know what I'm saying? And what does he do? This gracious, merciful husband comes after us. Jesus laid down his life for his bride. He wooed us away from our whoredom, and he betrothed us to himself. Okay? Or last week, Tyler talked about we're Christ's flock. Well, we were wandering. We were straying sheep. And what did Jesus do? He came and sought us, and he laid his life down for us, and he brought us into his fold. So think about what we were before the grace of God invaded our lives. We were pretty worthless. Okay? So think about the psalmist. He looked up at the heavens. And he goes, what, what is man that, that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? That's just because we're so small and God is so big. But in our sin, it's even worse. Listen to how Paul writes in Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's all of us by nature, apart from the saving grace of the gospel. But if you're a Christian, if God has broken in, and changed your life, then Peter writes, look with me here, at verse 14, chapter 1. Look at what, what happens here. As obedient children, okay, so you've been adopted into God's family, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance before you knew God, but as he who called you We'll hear in a minute down in chapter 2, it's, we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. But as he who called you is holy, you also should be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So God is holy, he's set apart, he's pure, and he called us out of darkness. When you heard the gospel and actually it sunk in that you were a sinner that you deserve the judgment of God and that God supplied the only Savior to rescue you from that plight and that predicament. When you heard that and you said, yes, I believe I'm going to turn from my ways, my old ways, living my own life for my own self, and I'm going to trust in Jesus as my Savior. When you were called out of darkness, you were transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son, 
kingdom of marvelous light and life. Okay? So, he called us out to be in his kingdom as his subjects, his citizens. Later, Peter calls us a holy nation, spiritually speaking. So, as those who belong to this holy God, he calls us to be holy in all of our conduct. We're his, and our conduct should reflect it. Okay, now look at verse 17. All of this is leading up to the metaphor that we'll see in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You're not home yet. The new heavens and the new earth are our final and, and real home. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So God is holy. We are not. We have to be ransomed from our futile ways. We have been, by nature, we're walking in spiritual darkness. So what does it take to ransom us? What does it take to, to get us out of the domain of darkness into his marvelous light? What could pay to redeem us? Gold's not enough. Silver's not enough. Only the precious blood of Jesus can do it, okay? We were not obtained at a discount, despite the fact that we were on the rubbish heap of the world, okay? Thinking back to what we were. We were obtained by the most precious, the most valuable payment ever made. When Paul was meeting with the Ephesian elders in, in Acts 20, 28, he, he says, Pay careful attention. He's talking to the, the leaders of the church. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, so precious blood was shed in order to obtain something precious, obviously very precious, to God, his body. His family, his bride, his dwelling place, his flock, his possession. Look at verse 9 now. Chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. See, possession again. We belong to him. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we are a people for God's own possession. Once we were not a people, now we're God's people. We belong to him. We've been bought with a price. We are God's treasured possession. That's not the only place that the Bible speaks of us that way. God speaks this way of his people. Let me just give you two other samples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Okay, you can just listen, maybe write down the reference. Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the, earth, on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. He's speaking of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, his people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. But it's not just an Old Testament idea. Listen to how Paul picks it up in the book of Titus. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So faith in the local church, 
Do you believe this is what God thinks of us, feels about us? How should then, remember dual meaning, what are we supposed to believe about the local church? Do you have convictions about the local church? What God says about her. But then also, what does your faith look like when it gets fleshed out? If you have those convictions, what should it look like if it gets fleshed out? How should that faith get lived out, find its way to shoe leather here at Bethel? We're going to come back to that. But as I said, this morning is like kind of applicational conclusion of the whole series. Okay, so, so we're not going to do it with all of them, but I want to just hit a few of the five metaphors from the last few weeks. And as you prepare to head into home group this afternoon or this evening or maybe later this week, which, which of these metaphors has impacted you the most? Which ones have encouraged you the most? Which ones have challenged you most? Do you have convictions about the importance of the local church from what you've heard over the last several weeks? So how does God want you then to relate to his body, his family, his building, his flock, his bride? Okay, so you'll discuss some of that in home group today or later this week, depending on when your group meets. But let me just prime the pump with a few, a few thoughts is just to get the juices flowing so that we, we make sure that these ideas about the local church, what God says about it, really hit the ground, get all the way down to, to brass tacks, okay? So take the first one. I'm only going to hit a few of these. Christ's body, okay? So this is the second point. You'll see the, the metaphors are listed there. We're only going to hit a few of these. Christ's body, most people in the world build their most significant relationships on affinity. We talked about that a little bit that morning. Now, this actually should happen in the church because our affinity is Jesus. <laughs> That's why we get together. That's why we, this kind of motley crew, like what are we all doing together? Well, because Jesus is our common interest, right? He's the one. He's our common Savior, okay? Now, Think about how important the whole church body is to the whole church body. Remember, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 and the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Okay, we, we all need each other. For instance, I'm not picking on young families here, I'm just using it as an example. Young families where the parents are Christians and naturally they want to surround themselves with other young Christian families because there's some, you know, logistical dynamics there sometimes with like nap times and whatnot, right? It's a little easier. Okay, so that can be a good thing. But listen, if it weren't for the whole church, the whole body, all the different members, Guess what? Those young families would miss out on Miss Ducky on Sunday mornings. And Mrs. Howe listening to verses on Wednesday nights. And the grubs with their manifold love for the kids. And I could go on and on, right? And you know what? If we did that kind of affinity cluster, just natural affinity cluster thing, we would all miss out and we actually are this morning because he's been in the hospital, we would miss out on Barry Steele teaching us to long for the return of Christ. 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Barry has taught me about that. And I think he's probably taught a lot of you as well. And all of our Mary Campbell friends silently chiding us not to complain about our petty annoyances? Or you know what? How about this? You can, like, think about the music that we do here together. You can get Christian music on your iPod playlist or on the internet, Pandora. You can set it up just the way you like it. You can have professional musicians, your favorite styles and songs. But you know what? If you don't connect and commit to the body you'll miss out on that Sunday morning when you sing Blessed Be the Name and Wayne Ho and Alice are in front of you with their hands raised singing that song and you know their story. 
that they bless God's name whether they're on a deathbed or whether, whether they're healthy. Or have you ever had it happen where you come in just cold and flat and somebody, Jamie Chow's face has done this for me before, you see her worship the Lord and, and it actually calls you to worship the Lord. So if we, if we kind of made our family on our own, we wouldn't be smart enough. God's wisdom is that there's this, this body with all kinds of different parts and we need, the whole church needs the whole church. So again, this is stuff to discuss and talk through in home groups. We're going to skip God's family, Christ's bride. Think about God's dwelling place, okay? So we bought our first house in Wheaton um, when Hannah was six months old. And it was a fixer-upper, okay? That's the way we could afford a house in Wheaton. So lots of elbow grease and lots of problems, right? You try to attack one, you find three more. Anybody? Any amens? Come on. All right. So when we moved here, we're thinking, no fixer-upper. We ended up with a fixer-upper. Okay. Um, Now, I sometimes get weary of another project or the list of those that I'm not getting to. But there's also a sweet satisfaction when you put in a bunch of effort and then you and others get to enjoy the fruit of your labor. Now, certainly there can be in our culture like this. We can get carried away with literal house-so-centric fix-up lives. But what I'm talking about is that is that sense in which fixer-upper planning and proactivity and effort can be an expression of responsibility and love. Love of neighbor, like the ones that live in your house. So, for instance, one of the things that, that uh, has needed to be done is the railing is all rotted on our deck. Um, it has a second level um, because, anyway, I can't get into this. So it was like shaky, dangerous up top. So I love my kids. I don't want my two-year-old to go f- flying off the top ropes, you know. And then Beth was leaning one day. It's a while ago now. And <laughs> the one section just fell. And thankfully, she, she was trying to set something on the little kid's picnic bench. And she fell right up. The whole section just went like that. So thankfully, she didn't get hurt. So... This deck will, has been, will be used for hospitality purposes. It's, it's love for my family, for me to, you know, exercise some planning and proactivity and effort. Well, guess what, folks? This, the church is a building, a spiritual building. And guess what? This church is a fixer-upper. Every church is. And I, I don't mean the literal building, though. <laughs> Ask Larry and Tom. Yes, this building is a fixer-upper. And if you have some desire to you know, put so, forth, some, forth some effort and have some skills that way, they would love to talk to you. Um, but anyway, the, it's a spiritual building, and the church is always going to be under construction until Jesus comes back. Okay? So Bethel is a fixer-upper. Every church is. Let's expect to roll up our sleeves and get to work. That's one of the entailments of what God says about the church. Okay, we'll pass on Christ's flock. Hopefully that's fresh in your minds from last week. So point number three. Like I said, this is the practical conclusion of the whole series, okay? So I'm going to get really, really practical here. Church is not just what we do or when we gather here on Sundays. It's not just this. I know that. Okay, but our gathering here on Sunday mornings is very important. Okay, so I want to exhort you to take Sundays seriously. So let me just start with a few rhetorical questions. What is your typical, this is where I have a pencil and kind of write down some thoughts like, Lord, what do you want, to, what do you want me to do here? How do I flesh out my faith in response to this series? What's your typical preparation for Sunday morning like? Maybe there's nothing at all. Okay? Okay, so for how many things is it true you get out of it what you put into it? Okay, do you think there might be any intersection here? How and why do you prepare for other things that matter? So how seriously do you take 
Sundays. How seriously, <laughs> this struck me years ago, and I still see it, you know, over and over again. How seriously does Satan take Sunday? He seems to take it pretty seriously. Anybody? I mean, how many mornings is it going to take where we're about pulling our hair out because we have nothing to wear to realize that maybe our battle is not against fabric and blood, you know, flesh and blood? Anyway, okay, forget it. You see what I'm saying? Um, So there's more going on here. He loves to distract away from hearing from God and loving on and being loved by his people. Okay, how many Sunday mornings at home is it just bite and devour and and then you arrive here and, hey, good morning, nice to see. Or do you view Sunday mornings as a passive affair? Are you passive in conversation, like apart from those that you came with? How many conversations do you initiate on a, a typical Sunday morning? Do others always have to engage you? Are you passive in prayer? Like, one of the things, like when, when someone else is praying up here, we all can be praying. That's what amen is all about. I'm saying, yes, I agree with what that brother or sister is praying. I want your will to be done. Do that, Lord. Okay, we're all praying. It's not supposed to be a spectator sport. Are you passive on Sunday mornings in relation to serving? Okay, I think we need to return to the old Puritan idea that Sunday is the market day for the soul. Okay, do they do this in Delaware market day? Which is, I'm not talking about like the thing for high school, you know, kids that get their food at discounts, you know, at school. Anybody here? Come on, did they do that here? You like order for market day? Yes. In Pennsylvania? Maybe it's only in Pennsylvania. Okay. Scratch that illustration from it next time. Okay. Nobody in Delaware. It was like a bulk food, food thing. Market day. Forget it. Bad connotation. Only for me. Okay. Um, the point is market day in so many places and times past, towns and villages throughout history, it's this one main day of the week that's set aside for the market, right? And everybody goes to it. So they prepare for that. Probably still happens in certain cultures. There we go. Thank you. In Africa, it still happens. So some of these old writers, they they used to think of the Lord's Day as the market day for the soul, a harvest day for the soul. Okay, One writer says it like this, those who make good use of the Lord's Day fill up their shopping basket with the best food for their week's provision. Okay, So it's a day to store up for the week spiritual goods. So how do you approach Sunday? How can we come so that it will be a market day for our souls? How do we make the most of Sunday? So two thoughts, come to receive and come to give, okay? We're still under Take Sundays Seriously, okay? So I've also heard it said like this, come on the lookout for God, leave on the lookout for people and for needs, okay? So if you're going to have a good market day, you need people to, to bring their produce and their wares to supply those who have needs. So there's Sunday school teachers and people that prepare for leading us in musical worship and and the sermon preparation and all of this preparation that takes place, okay? And there is a hungry, receptive heart that needs to be made ready so that we come to receive, we come to give, okay? So I think I think we could come hungrier. I think we can prepare so that we get the most out of and we end up being a blessing to others as they come as well. So like I said, getting really practical here, okay? And this is not um, like shamelessly self-serving. I am a listener to sermons as well, okay? Because I'm going to give some advice here. We all, I think, need to take heed how we hear, okay? Because oftentimes, I think we have spiritual ADD when it comes to listening, okay? And if we just get carried along like jellyfish in the current of of contemporary thought, attention spans and so much, and, and so forth, we will miss out on so much grace that is intended for us, okay? Again, take Sundays seriously, So, do you think about how you listen to a sermon? 
Okay, our listening should be proactive, not passive. God is addressing us in his word. Okay, even if it's a poor preacher with a less than stellar message, which, you know, like me oftentimes, okay? But there are things that we can do before, during, and after to make the most of the Sunday meeting and the, and the, the feeding on God's word. So before, you know what? Some of you just need to turn the TV off on Saturday night. It's getting super practical here. Have you ever just read the passage ahead of time? We almost always put it in the bulletin, right? So read the passage ahead of time and mark down what some of your questions are. And, and you know what? Pray for whoever's preaching. And then pray for your own heart to be prepared. Pray for others that are going to be there. And then get to bed at a reasonable time. Sunday morning starts Saturday night. Okay? Well, why don't we go to bed oftentimes at a reasonable time on Saturday night? Is it because it's not that important that we don't think it matters? Okay? Please, I'm not, this is not, you're not being, you know, respectful of me. No, I'm saying, if we're here to hear from God, how important is the church to us? If it's God's treasured possession, how much of a treasure is this to us? Okay? So I think we can exercise the, the muscles of our mind to focus and be attentive, not zoning in and out, reading the bulletin, etc. Okay? And then even the way that we, we respond afterwards, I think. I mean, home groups is a huge help along these lines, but we don't have home groups every week. So what if we asked each other intentionally afterwards, how did God's word challenge you today? Did you see any new glimpses of the glory of God? Did you gain any fresh appreciation for an old truth? Okay? So lots of ways where we can engage and be proactive, not passive, before and during and after. Okay? But obviously preaching isn't the only place we receive on Sunday mornings. Okay? Songs. There is grace to be had in these songs. Even if you don't like the tune. Okay? Focus on the lyrics. Mind and heart engagement, okay? So we need to focus. Prayers, again, do we pray when we're being led in prayer? Even the offertory, like you can use that time as a time to prepare your heart to receive, okay? So we could go on and on, the Lord's table. Even the announcements, even though we're gonna try to start to minimize some of those in the days to come. Um, And then obviously, intentional in conversation, making the most of the day in between Sunday school and the service, getting in here in time to really prepare our hearts to receive from God, and then afterwards on the lookout, who is new? Who can I minister to? Who can I get to know better? So come hungry, come to receive, and then also come to give, okay? Is this part of your conscious planning for each Sunday mornings, each Sunday morning, to pray intentionally. Lord, would you help me to, to talk to who you want me to talk to tomorrow? Help me to be like a burden bearer to somebody that needs somebody to share their burden with. Lord, I pray that all the visitors would really feel warmly welcomed and received and help me to, to help them feel that way. Okay, so if you're a Christian, you're gifted, And that gift or those gifts were given to you for this body. So you can come to give and bless and encourage and serve. Okay, listen to this quote by Paul Miller in a book that he wrote called A Loving Life in a World of Broken Relationships. The biggest problem people have in searching for community is just that. You don't find community. You create it through love. Look how this transforms the way you enter a room full of strangers. Our instinctive thought is, who do I know? Who am I comfortable with? There's nothing wrong with these questions, but the Jesus questions that create communities are, who can I love? Who is left out? Here are two different formulas for community formation. One, search for community where I am loved. And then he says, oftentimes we'll become disappointed with community. Or two, second formula, show steadfast love and create community. So do you see the active approach to taking Sundays seriously? 
We are all intended to be a means of grace. Grace has been given to us, and God intends that grace to be recycled and passed on to others through us. We are conduits of God's grace, not cul-de-sacs, okay? So, no armchair church life, right? No, no freeloading. Let's all get up out of the proverbial easy chair and get to work. It doesn't have to be earth-shaking, okay? Even just... <laughs> Like something, you know, our children's ministry workers shouldn't be strapped for volunteers, okay? Or you could self-appoint yourself to the, to the welcoming committee, okay? Rather than coming in late and sitting down with people that you came with, what if you got here early intentionally and kept an eye out for people that you don't recognize and went and initiated conversation with them and welcomed them to Bethel, okay? And you looked out for people after the service. What if you invited them to lunch, on that given Sunday, and what if you told them about home groups, okay? Like, we all are responsible for the atmosphere that is going to be ours at this church, how warm or cold, okay? So that's enough. Let's take Sundays seriously. Fourthly, let's consider the meaning of membership, okay? What, what is the meaning of membership in the church? Well, essentially, that was the entire first message in the series, Okay, from 1 Corinthians 12, we are members, like I said, organic parts of the body of Christ. Well, here at Bethel, and again, this is for the sake of application here to the whole series, like many churches, we have a membership covenant. And it's a a really good summary of what you're committing to when you commit to membership. And we're going to be reciting it together in a few weeks when we receive a number of new members. Well, there's there's a copy of it in your bulletin. Okay? So we're not going to read through it right now, um, but I'd encourage you to read it over this afternoon. Maybe you can try to identify the scripture passages that lie underneath it, okay, and then take it to your home group. Be sure to stick this in your Bible and take it to home group because you're going to discuss it this afternoon or this evening. So again, we're not going to take time to read through it now, but I just want to share one thought regarding membership and why it's so good and right and biblical. Membership in the church, the church that is Christ's body, God's um, family, Christ's bride, God's dwelling place, and Christ's flock. Membership in the body, it makes visible what is already true but invisible. Okay, Church membership is like a wedding ring or an engagement ring. If you're committed to Christ by faith in his death on the cross for you, then you should be baptized, right? That's kind of making visible what's invisibly true. Well, if you are committed to Christ and his body, you're a part of his body, then, like Romans 12 says, we're members one of another. So membership, committing to membership, is making visible that which is invisible, this vertical incorporation of the body of Christ and this horizontal covenantal commitment to one another. Okay, so you can look that over this afternoon. But let me just share a quote from Spurgeon here as we uh, move on to the fifth point. Give yourself to the church, he says. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect... I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church... It is right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I've already said, the church is faulty, but that's no excuse for your not joining it if you are the Lord's, nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. So did you hear 
how Spurgeon called the church the dearest place on earth to us. Which leads us to our, our fifth and final point here on the outline. I wonder what you think of that phrase. Does it resonate at all? Has it ever resonated? Dearest place on earth? Now remember, this series had an intentional double meaning. First, faith in the local church, meaning I want to believe. We need to believe what God says about the local church. We need principled conviction about the nature and importance of the local church. And then when those convictions that faith is strong, we will live that faith out in a way that we give ourselves to serve the growth, the health, the strength, the vitality of the local church. So do you believe what God says about his church? If so, she will be dear to you. When something or someone is dear to you, it means you cherish it. You regard it with deep affection. It's worth a lot to you. Listen. The church is the dearest place on earth to God. And obviously when I say place... I don't mean a physical address, but the people of God. For our part, we gather here at 1217, Wilson wrote. The church is the dearest place on earth to God. Do you think I'm exaggerating? I hope you don't think I'm exaggerating. What does God think of the church? How does God feel about the church? Think through those metaphors again. It's Christ's body. He nourishes and cherishes it. Ephesians 5. It's God's family. He loves and leads his family. It's Christ's bride. He laid down his life for and is fiercely faithful to her. It's God's dwelling place. He wants to dwell in us and with us. He laid the foundation. He's building it for his own dwelling. It's Christ's flock. He laid down his life. and He brings back the strays to be a part of his fold. Okay, we did this series because as elders, I think we all shared concern that we're not sure that all of us are all in. Okay, I'm not sure if convictional commitment is characteristic among all of us. Okay? And, and certainly we all need to grow in knowing God's mind and having his heart for the things that he loves, right? I think sometimes our home group commitment is flimsy in certain pockets, even Sunday morning commitment. Okay? So if there isn't a convictional commitment, belief in what God says, then that's also going to get fleshed out in a weak commitment when the rubber meets the road. Okay? Now, certainly there are some of you that are incredibly committed and gladly so, and there are some of you that are very committed but often begrudgingly so. Some are doing too much. <laughs> it's hard to be all in when, it's, when you're doing all that you're doing. Okay, So we're concerned about those things, and hopefully the point of this series is to see all these glorious things that God thinks about the church and how he's poured his grace out on us so that we believe it and we're encouraged and we're inspired and motivated to give our lives for the sake of the church. So do you believe, do you believe, do you believe that the church is central to God's plan and mission? Do you believe that your church is central to your life? Is that faith working itself out here and now? So, listen to another quote. This is from the book of the month. I've actually quoted from it a couple of times, and I have failed to identify that. So, stop dating the church, fall in love with the family of God. Great little book. Listen to what he says there. Before any of us can understand how to relate to the church down the street, let's take ours. We need to see the church as God sees it. You see, the strongest argument I know for why you and I should love and care about the church is that Jesus does. 
The greatest motivation we could ever find for being passionately committed to the church is that Jesus is passionately committed to the church. As Christians, we're called to be imitators of God, Ephesians 5.1. We're to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8.29. Can there be any question that part of being like Jesus is to love what he loves? Christians often speak of wanting God's heart for the poor or the lost, and these are good desires. But shouldn't we also want God's heart for the church? If Jesus loves the church, you and I should too. So where you and I, and I'm included, this is not like some shepherd, you know, lashing the sheep as if this doesn't apply to me. I could be very busy and not treasure the church the way that God treasures her. Okay, so where you and I need to be convicted, let's be convicted. But I want to end this way. Let's be sure to go away fixated, not on how pathetic we've been, if we've been pathetic, but let's go away fixated on how God views us, his people. Remember, if you hung out with God, you'd quickly find out what's most important to him. (laughs) Because guess what? He would talk like this. This is like, this is off the charts, okay? Just listen. This is the way God talks about his people. Isaiah 43, 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Because I... I am the Lord, your God. You're mine. I'm yours. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. The church is God's treasured possession. It is to God the dearest place on earth. And if we don't believe that, we'll never experience it as such. If we don't believe that the church is the dearest place on earth to God. We will not experience it that way. And we won't work to cultivate a community here where those behind us that come after us will experience it as the dearest place on earth. Don't you want to give that to the people that are not yet in these pews? We need it, so let's cultivate it for the sake of our own hearts for our children and for the people that are going to come a month, a year, 10 years, 20 years from now. So, quote, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing a song that's very appropriate in response. O church, arise. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to believe all that you say about the church. Your love for and the way you treasure us is hard to really believe. And I pray that you would strengthen us with power through your spirit in in our hearts so that we would know your love for us, your church, 
that it surpasses knowledge, that we would have an experiential knowledge of it, that we would know how wide and long and high and deep your love is. And so to you who are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to you be glory, Lord, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.